All right, back to Revelation chapter 2 this evening. Revelation chapter 2. This is the third letter in the, in the seven letters to the seven churches. And we're considering the third letter tonight to Pergamum. And I'll start my reading at verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you or war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in our weakness, we have learned that your strength will not forsake us. So we hide in you this evening. I hide in you, and I ask that you would, that you would speak through your word this, from your word this, this evening through me in my weakness. Yet, your word is what the issue is, and your word is where the truth lies, and your word is what you aim to deliver tonight. So we ask that you would help me and help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, specifically to our church through this letter. We ask this for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the last two weeks, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of mine out the one big principle or theme from each one of these letters. And the first, the first letter to Ephesus, the big theme was love, that on the heart of Jesus for his churches is love, not just being doctrinally sound or theologically orthodox, as important as those things are, but love for others is, is equally and as much important. Uh, then Smyrna, last week we saw that not only is love important, like the church of Ephesus, but in Smyrna, the issue of perseverance and suffering is a sign of a faithful and healthy church as well. And in the third letter this evening, the letter to the church at Pergamum, we see that truth, that truth is absolutely critical for a church to be healthy. Pergamum was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It was situated between 55 and 65 miles north of Smyrna. Remember I said that these letters sort of follow a geographical pattern. This city had a population of about 190,000 people, and it was located about, like I said, 55 or 65 miles north of the church we considered last week. This, um, this city was pagan to the core. We learned that very quickly in the letter in verse 13. Twice, Jesus mentioned something about the satanic stronghold that was present in the city, right? Did you see that in verse 13? He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then at the end of the verse, he says, 
regarding Antipas, a faithful witness who was killed, where Satan dwells. So in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's writing, writing this letter to the church, he recognizes that Satan has a specific stronghold in this city. It wasn't that there was a literal, physical throne of Satan present in the city, but that Satan's influence was present throughout the city. In fact, it was full of pagan temples and dominated by a massive altar to Zeus on the hill above the city. This was a religious city. It was a pluralistic city. It was, a, it was an extremely religious city, but not in the Christian sense. It was a city that was pagan to the core. Many paths to many gods. Believe what you want. Live how you want. Satan's throne. It was a place where the truth had to be defended because it was under assault outside and inside the church. And to this church, Jesus stresses both the importance of holding to true teaching as well as correcting false teaching. I've entitled the sermon this evening, Truth Matters, both that it matters because of the truth and also matters concerning the truth. So this evening, we're going to think about three things that have to do with the truth and its importance in the life of a local church. Here's the first one, and it's in the first two verses. And here's the first thing. Truth must be proclaimed faithfully. Truth must be proclaimed faithfully. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Notice Jesus writes to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and he describes himself as, as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold Fast, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. The church had remained faithful to Jesus in the midst of hostility and external threats. In the face of persecution and even martyrdom, the church had not denied the faith. They had not abandoned Jesus. They kept following Jesus even when they were pressured to do the opposite. They refused to allow their witness about Jesus. To fall silent, even though it was costly to maintain that witness in the midst of such a hostile culture. Notice what Jesus commends them for. He says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. That is, you held on to who I am and proclaiming who I am and what I have done, even in the midst of a very unpopular culture concerning that message. They proclaimed the absolute exclusivity of Jesus into this pagan culture. They refused to quit witnessing for the purpose of personal safety. They had refused to do that in spite of the martyrdom of an outspoken Christian named Antipas. In fact, the word there that describes Antipas, my faithful witness, is the word that we get the word martyr from. It refers to someone who bears verbal testimony to Jesus and his work. Initially, it referred to someone who provided testimony in court, a witness, a faithful witness. Later, though, it was applied to that person whose faith in court led to their execution. And that's assuming what happened to Antipas. But notice Jesus doesn't just commend them for holding fast to his name, being unwilling to forsake the exclusivity of Christ and his work. But he says that they did it even in the days of Antipas. That is, even as Fellow Christians were being killed and martyred for this message. They still held fast to it. I mean, who could have blamed them, right, from a worldly perspective if they had kept their mouth shut about Jesus in those days? 
I mean, a brother had just been killed, and the church kind of goes into hiding for a little while. I mean, who could have blamed them? But in the midst of those days, the days of Antipas, they continued to make Jesus known. They did not keep their mouth shut about Jesus. And who even could have blamed them, again, from a worldly perspective, of denying Jesus altogether? When one of their own brothers, assuming their own brother from their own church, maybe not from their own church, but who had been killed. So, in the, But in the face of persecution and martyrdom, they continued to proclaim Christ and his truth. And if this doesn't serve as a rebuke to you and me, I don't know what is. Especially the, the cost of faithfulness that this church had to pay was so high, yet they maintained their witness to Christ. And in some ways, the cost that we have to pay is so, so, so much smaller than that. A smirk. A giggle. Even alienation. Where people, you come to sit down at the lunchroom table and people just get up and step away. I mean, the the price that we have to pay for faithfulness is so, so small compared to what this church had to pay. Nevertheless, they continued to be faithful in the midst of the worst, humanly speaking, the worst of circumstances. So truth must be proclaimed faithfully. This was a culture that was known for being, like I said, pagan, pluralistic, all roads lead to the same God, believe what you want, live how you want. And in that culture, this church said, no, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And they got heat for it. They took heat for it. And Jesus commends them for that, for proclaiming the truth faithfully. They were witnessing. They were evangelizing. They were speaking the gospel. And Jesus says, yes, yes. And Jesus recognizes that it wasn't easy for them to do that. Because he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. I'm very intimately involved with the activity of Satan and what it costs. to to follow the Lord in the midst of a hostile world. I know it because I received it, Jesus says. But I commend you for holding the faith, for holding fast to my name and not denying me. The second thing we learn about truth is that it must be guarded corporately. Not only truth must be proclaimed faithfully, But in the second two verses, verses 14 and 15, we see that truth must be guarded corporately. Notice this is where Jesus enters into the, but I have this against you, the corrective word for the church. And in verse 14, he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The church had people in it who held a false teaching, and really whose false teaching led them to contrary living according to the standard that God had set for the church. The problem is not that the church as a whole was holding to false teaching, but the church was allowing some people to hold false teaching without, it seems, acting to stop them. In other words, the majority was not exercising discipline over the minority. Now, this church was emphasizing 
individual salvation. They were out witnessing. They were preaching the gospel so that people would be reconciled to God through Jesus and his work, through faith in him. But they were doing it at the expense of our Christian responsibility to be concerned about the health of the church as a whole. And we see this in our own day quite a bit in various churches. Very, very evangelistically zealous, very, very outward oriented, very, very much willing to pay the price of faithfulness, to speak the gospel to our neighbors, to speak the gospel into the culture, to speak the gospel into those, into the, to the lost world, and seeing people reconciled to Jesus and brought into the church, but very undiscerning when it comes to rooting out that same satanic influence within the church itself thinking that just because the people now got converted and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that somehow the influence of Satan is going to be withdrawn. No. And we see that it wasn't withdrawn from this church. In fact, within the church, Satan was working. And Jesus uses the, an Old Testament example to describe what's happening to this church. He uses the example of Balaam and Balak, which is recorded in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. Now, I want, I want us to go back there for just a second so we can get the context of what Jesus is saying. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. Actually, we'll start at uh, Numbers 23. Third book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 23. And just to give you the context, Balak, the king of Moab, asked Balaam, a sort of prophet for hire, to prophesy against God's people. But Balaam finds he can only speak a blessing from God and not the curse that Balak desires. We see this in various parts of chapter 23. I'll pick up reading at verse 5. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his, beside his burnt offering. And Balak took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like this. And in verse 11, and Balak said to, said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I told you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So direct attack failed, right? They were trying to curse Israel, and Balak had told Balaam, do it by speaking against them, speak a curse against them. Balaam's like, I can't do anything. I'm a prophet. I can only speak what God has told me to speak, and he's told me to speak blessing over them. But they come up with plan B. And plan B is what Balaam offers as a secondary approach. Moabite women seduce the people of Israel from within and lead them into immorality and idol worship. So if direct attack doesn't work, get them from the inside, come up from within, sneak attack, come inside and sort of 
poison from the out from the inside. So if if they've got sort of, I mean, imagine it this way: if it were um, like a military situation, which I don't even know if this would work in a military environment. So sorry, Patrick Rowe, if you hear this, and that couldn't work. But I'm going to go ahead and give the example anyway. Say the the army is fitted with armor totally to protect them, and the arrows and the cannons and the gunshots, those aren't working, just bouncing off of them. But say they develop some sort of gas. I mean, I know I'm seriously anachronistic here. Like gas, arrows, then gas? They can't have both. Arrows are like way, way back in time. But, okay, follow the analogy. So they've got the gas, and they throw it into the camp, and it gets creeps within the armor, and it creeps inside of the army, and it begins killing them that way. That's the suggestion that Balaam is offering. Okay, the direct attack isn't working. The arrows are bouncing off. The bullets are bouncing off. Let's find a way to get inside, get behind the armor, get underneath it. And so we see in chapter 25 what happens. Would you look there, flip over a couple of chapters? While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So the corruption from within has worked. Now we learn that this, in, in Numbers 31, verse 16, you don't have to turn there, that this was Balaam's idea to do it this way. And if we go back to Revelation now, we see why Jesus pulls the illustration that he does to help us understand what's happening inside of this church. He said what's happening is exactly what Balaam did. Corruption from within is happening. They're corrupting the people from inside the church rather than directly attacking outside the church. See, we learn two strategies that Satan uses to bring down a church here, don't we? Turn the world against the church and make the church hostile, or sorry, make the world hostile to the church, attack it, persecute it. But that wasn't working in Pergamum. The church was thriving. In the midst of persecution, at least outwardly, they were witnessing, they were evangelizing, they were speaking the gospel. So Satan says, okay, let's go to plan two or plan B, turn the church against the truth. Corrupt the church from within. So turn the, turn the world against the church. And if that heat doesn't work to burn the church up, then turn the church against the truth. And that'll work. And evidently, that's what's going on in this church. Because there is impurity. There's immorality. There is worldliness of the most obvious kind. There's idolatry going on within the church. And this church is doing nothing to guard that or try to stamp that out. Now, Jesus uses the phrase in verse 15 that some were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, that's not the first time we've heard of these people, the Nicolaitans. 
Uh, we saw it also in the first letter to the church at Ephesus in 2.6. We see that in the church at Ephesus, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the church at Pergamum is succumbing to the things that the Ephesians were strong in. The Ephesians were strong in recognizing that sort of error and stamping it out. But they lacked the witness and the evangelism and the zeal of Pergamum. But Pergamum has that zeal for evangelism and witness, but they lacked the strength of the Ephesians. Now, probably the Nicolaitans are suggesting that Christians join in the immorality and idol worship at the pagan temples. Remember, that's what's going on here in Asia Minor. This is a pagan city. Pagan temples were known for being places of abject and deliberate immorality. And being converted out of this environment, new Christians freshly converted out of paganism would have been confused about all of these things. I mean, think about the letter to Corinth, right in the heart of this place. And Paul spends chapters 5 through 10 addressing these two issues. Food sacrifice to idols and immorality. Because that was life for them in the pagan environment that they lived. And the church in Corinth, if you remember, is located right across the Aegean Sea from, from Pergamum. Very close. And that church needed instruction on these matters. And so in a sense, the diagnostic, if Jesus were to give the full diagnostic to this church as to what's wrong and how to fix it, read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through 10. And what Paul says to Corinth in those situations. But the teaching of Balaam that they hold to is that it is okay for the church to hold unbiblical beliefs and live in unfaithful ways. And Jesus says, no, no. You must care as much about getting the gospel out as preserving the integrity of the gospel within the church as well. It's not enough to speak the gospel, and to bring those people into the church without discipling those people into the truths of the gospel that they have claimed to believe. And as it stands, only a few people are holding to this teaching, but the majority have not taken steps to stamp it out. Now, let me make a distinction here that I think needs to be made. This is not saying, you know, Sometimes we can think if we if we go into this, if we were, were to look at this church and we see this small group of people behaving this way, that, the, that every time we see um, people living contrary to the gospel in the church, they're probably false teachers. <laughs> now, I know we don't think that, but that can be a temptation. If people prolong in a pattern of sin or struggle with a certain sin, that, that therefore, oh, what, this could be, this could be the, these people. This could be those who hold to the teaching of Balaam or those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and it's not that at all. In fact, we need to distinguish between immature Christians who need to be instructed with false teachers that need to be exposed. And I think the Lord has helped us and created within our own congregation a level of discernment where we can tell the difference between those things. We know the difference between an immature believer who is being sucked back into their own, own ways of life that needs instruction and help and care and prayer and all those things with false teachers who have an agenda that need to be exposed. And this is not a, a situation of false teaching in the sense that 
these are false teachers within the church. I believe that these are, these are people within the church who are behaving in unbiblical ways, and the church isn't doing anything about it. And the church needs to call these people to repentance and to return to the gospel. So what's the main issue? What's the main issue in this church? It's the same issue that shows up again and again in the Old Test or in the New Testament. Remember passages like Galatians 5:13, do not use your freedom, brothers, as a cloak for the flesh, but rather serve one another in love. This church and some of the people in it were using their newfound freedom in Christ to live how they wanted to live. Or Jude 4, those who pervert the grace of our God into immorality. They've received this message. Jesus saves. Jesus forgives. It's all his work. It's not your work. Every, everything that he has done is what makes you acceptable to God. It's not the things that you have done that make you acceptable to God. And they heard that, and they said, okay, Marcos, you want to go to the pagan temple today? Let's go. Grace. Let's enjoy grace. Let's enjoy freedom. Let's enjoy this newfound freedom that we have in Christ. And, in fact, they're using it to make provision for the flesh. And and Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's the old Romans 6-1 error. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And these people were saying, you can. You can. There is a way to die to sin and still live in it, and there's not a way. You're either following Jesus with all your heart and allowing him to be Lord over your sexual conduct, or you're not. And these people were not allowing Jesus to be Lord over that area of their life. And, they're, and, and he's saying, Jesus comes to this church and says, that it will kill you. That will kill you. So a church that has no plan and a church that is unwilling to get involved, to have members love each other in such a way where they know these sorts of temptations, idolatry and immorality, these are not just first century issues. These are present 21st century Owensboro church issues. And we have to know this. It's one of the reasons that we have the care group study that we have this time. And in the, and in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about idolatry, what it is, what impact it has on our lives. Because we want to make sure that as a church, we are preserving our integrity and our purity. Because the gospel's at stake, our testimony's at stake, our growth in grace matters. Here's the third thing. Truth must be applied personally. Truth must be applied personally. We've seen that truth must be proclaimed publicly. This church was doing a great job at that. Truth must be guarded corporately. They were not doing a great job at that. And truth must be applied personally. And here's where the rubber meets the road in the letter. Verse 16, therefore, Jesus has one word for them, repent, repent. In other words, take what I've said and apply it to your life and the life of your church. It wouldn't be enough for them just to hear this sermon or hear, read this letter from Jesus and say, thanks for the suggestions, Jesus. Thanks. Appreciate that. They had to take that message and do something with it. They had to take it and apply it. 
They had to exercise discipline on these people. They had to stamp out this false teaching that was leading to this false way of behavior. And so Jesus says, apply it to yourselves. Truth must be applied. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Now, Jesus spends more of verse 16 and 17 giving them encouragement to do so than he does instruction for how to do it. <laughs> he just says, repent. And then he gives the rest, the, the rest of the two verses, giving them three reasons why they should repent, why they should be willing to do this awkward, difficult, hard thing. It's not easy to confront sin. Have you learned that yet? Very awkward, very hard, challenging, uncomfortable, causes squirms and shakes and weirdness. And what's going to happen as a result of this? What kind of, what's, what's the fallout going to be? And Jesus says, listen, the fallout's going to be a lot worse if you don't confront it. It's going to be a whole lot worse if you don't confront it. This is a cancer. And if you don't address it with immediate chemotherapy, it's only going to get worse. So let's attack it. And Jesus gives them incentive for doing that. He basically says, if not, here's what's going to happen. And if so, here's what's going to happen. So he gives them both sides. It's like the school principal that says, all right, here's, the, here's what you did. You did it wrong. All right. If you don't respond right next time, here's what's going to happen. If you do respond, here's what's going to happen. He gives them both sides. He gives them the negative and the positive. If not, what's going to happen? He says in verse 16, if not, if you don't repent, if you don't stamp out this false teaching, if you don't confront these people, I will come to you soon and war against them, war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to come to church and I got a sword with me. And the sword here symbolizes the authority of God's king to judge and rule. If you won't take care of your issues, I'll take care of your issues. But mine, I'll bring a sword. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of judgment. On the people and on the church as a whole. He says that he's going to war against them, which is the people that are committing the sin. But as a result, that is also coming to the church as a whole. The immediate judgment is on the people, but the effect of the judgment is on the church as a whole. And if they were a loving church, they wouldn't want that to happen to their, to their friends, would they? If they were a loving church and they had heard Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge these people, they would be immensely concerned and want to talk to those people about that sin. And so I think Jesus is coming and saying, listen, do you love these people? Do you love these people? Then confront them. Because if not, I'm coming. But if so, what's going to happen? If they do, he says in verse 17, to the one who conquers, that is to the one who actually repents and begins to move in a direction that will Confront this sin to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now we get to the fun parts of Revelation, the symbolism and the and the often sometimes difficult symbolism. But I think this symbolism is not as difficult. We know what manna is. Manna was the food that God gave his people in the wilderness after he had delivered them from Egypt. 
to sustain them in the wilderness. But you remember where else manna was placed? Manna wasn't only scattered throughout the desert in the morning when the people would awake in Israel, or the people of Israel would awake in the wilderness and look out and see the manna again that morning. But it was also preserved in the most holy place in the tabernacle. We see that in Exodus 16 and Hebrews 9.4. But Christ promises to nourish his faithful people with an unfailing supply of heavenly spiritual food. And we know from John 6 what the true manna is. We know the true manna that came down from heaven, what that's all about. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So what he's saying is you will have access to me. You will enjoy me. I will give you some of the hidden manna. Hidden meaning that no one else knows about. Manna that's not, that, that people aren't aware, that they don't know anything about. It's the, it's the access into the most holy place to enjoy Christ forever. I'll give that to you. I will share my glory with you. I will bring you into my presence. I will dwell with you. And I will give you access to the unsearchable riches of who I am. Better than the food that's offered to the idols, which is a symbol of participation in idolatry, is God's feast of manna which is a symbol of participation in Jesus. That's what the hidden manna is. And he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give myself to you. I will, I will, I will allow you to feast on my glory. And a second thing he offers is I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. This is a little bit tougher. In fact, I read eight different interpretations of this. <laughs> Eight different interpretations of what the white stone is and what the new name is. And I'll go ahead and give you very quickly um, the ones I think are strongest and then kind of where I land on this. But a white stone, it's not clear what this refers to. White in the book of Revelation is a symbol of for purity. And it, and it, con it, it makes sense because it's contrasting with the impurity that is present in the church. But stones were used for different things. Stones were sometimes used just as for, for describing something that's durable and, and, and imperishable. Stones were also used to describe or for, as tokens of admission. So this may be a picture of the Christian's right to enter the kingdom of God, the fact that they're known by God, that this access into God's presence by which they will be clothed in purity is a picture of their being accepted by God, brought into God's kingdom. Could be. Stones were also used when a jury voted, white for innocent, black for guilty. So this could be a picture of a Christian's acquittal on the day of judgment. Or it could be a lot of those things kind of woven together. The new name is a little bit more difficult because commentators are divided between whether or not this new name is for Christians or the new name is describing Christ. I believe the new name is a picture of being owned by God and all the security that that entails, whether or not it's primarily Christ's name and us being joined to him or our name as represented by what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's wrapped together. The point is, if we put it all together, I think the picture that Jesus is painting is a promise that we will gain access to God's presence made pure by the blood of Christ accepted into God's favor forever, belonging to him, 
secure and fixed in a permanent state of enjoying all that he has provided for us in Christ in the new heavens and new earth. It's a big, big promise. It's basically saying, I will accept you. I will bring you into my kingdom. I will give you permission and all the rights that you need to get there. And as a result, you will enjoy me forever and all that I've provided. It fits consistently with all of Christ's promises and revelation concerning what he's going to do for his church at the end, which is bring them in, clothe them with a white robe, cover their sins through the blood of Christ, bring them into his immediate presence, bring the new heavens and the new earth in, and grant them the glory that was promised to them before the foundation of the world. So, in other words, Jesus offers more than enough incentive for them to do what he's telling them to do. I mean, if we believed that we were going to get, that, that the approval of Christ was what mattered, access to him was secure and stable no matter what happens, then they now have the encouragement and the incentive to go and address these people. Regardless of the look that shows up on their face when they talk to them about their sin. Which may be, see, I knew this church was legalistic. I'm out of here. That may be their response to these people. See, I knew. I knew it. I knew Jesus' grace wasn't free. I knew there was some cost to it. And they start to get on the case of the people. And then they just go. What's going to cause them to absorb that? This. (laughs) The fact that they responded that way doesn't change this, church. It doesn't change the fact that you now have all this, access to the hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who received it. It doesn't change the fact that you're secure in me, and in fact, it makes me more pleased with you. Or it could be the opposite situation. They come to those people, they confront them lovingly about their sin, and those people repent. And they're taught the way of God more accurately, and they're shown wait. Titus says that the grace of God was given so that we would say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they say, I had no idea. Thank you. And the people are restored. They repent. The sin is addressed. The church is made healthy and a more glorious reflection of Jesus. So we see here, truth matters. Truth matters publicly preaching it. Truth matters the way the people are living within the church. And truth matters with, when we, with what we do with it, applying it to ourselves and being willing to address the issues that need to be addressed. So may God help us to do that. If we ever have these issues in our church, which we will and which we've had, that we'll continue to respond faithfully, that it will be loving. It won't come out of a spirit of haughtiness and pride, but it'll come out of a spirit of brokenness with a lot of tears for those people, but that we will do what Galatians 6.1 tells us to do, which is restore the broken with a spirit of gentleness. Restore those who are caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray. Father, your church is, as you say in 1 Timothy 3, the pillar of, and foundation of the truth. And to the degree that we proclaim the truth publicly, guard the truth corporately, and apply the truth personally, we are living out that calling. So help us to always be that way for your glory. Amen.